0: Welcome to Future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, and together we'll explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Future of XYZ is presented in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Uh, Doreen Samuelson. She is uh, a clinical psychologist uh, as well as um, the chief clinical officer at the Catalyte Foundation um, out in the Bay Area. Uh, Doreen, thank you very much for joining us on Future of XYZ today.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thank you.
0: Well, I mean, you're an expert in all a, a lot of areas. You've, you've worked in Kaiser Permanente's uh, mental health care facilities uh, and and systems. Um, You provide clinical leadership for behavioral um, uh, health research. You've authored books, authored studies, obviously. You have about 30 plus years of experience in this field. And what we want to talk about today is the future of developmental disabilities. Um, and, and, And what's so interesting is we started prepping this conversation way back when we first were introduced. Um, is really why it matters. And, and not just about the d- disabilities themselves, which sometimes are visible and sometimes are invisible, but really, what does the future look like? Um, that said, I always want to give uh, guests an opportunity to define the topic at hand. So the first question is, uh, how do we define uh, in the context of this developmental disability? Well thank you Lisa That's a really good
1: question. So developmental disabilities is really a group of conditions um, that we diagnose based on a set of criteria but the the most important kind of general thread throughout developmental disabilities is you have a child, a young child uh, who is not developing the way that we would expect a child to develop so they're not developing typically. often what we see are delays in language so you know normally we start to see, Uh, young, even young babies communicate. We get those first words about 18 months, you know, maybe two years. And if we have a child who has a developmental disability, what we often see is we don't see that language. Now, developmental disabilities as a group include things like intellectual disabilities. We used to call that mental retardation because that's an old term now. We call it an intellectual disability now. It also includes autism spectrum disorder, which is a very heterogeneous group. Um, some uh, of those children also have intellectual disabilities along with their autism, and and many do not. So it's a it's a it's a large group, and uh, the, one of the things that we know about developmental disabilities is that they show up in childhood. So it's not something that somebody develops it when they're an adult, for example. Uh, but and it
0: then, usually carries through their lifetime. I'm sure. Carries through their life, but
1: we see it in early childhood. We can make the diagnosis in early childhood, or maybe in uh, school age, sometimes occasionally we will, uh, the diagnosis will be made when, when in the teenage years, but almost always we see signs uh, very early on. And if it's a severe developmental disability, we will see things, you know, even a few months old, six, eight months old, we will start to see that things are not going the way that we would have expected them to go for typical development.
0: That would be things like fetal alcohol syndrome, D- Down syndrome, uh, Spina bifida, all of things those like things, this. and yeah. and what we
1: see is that the child isn't making those milestones right the when we would expect them. So we do have the genetic disorders, something like Down syndrome would be a good example. We also have things if a child was exposed, as you mentioned, fetal alcohol syndrome to alcohol during pregnancy, or some other you know uh, teratogens um, during pregnancy um, that can happen. Um, sometimes we have a birth injury, right? We have a, a lack of oxygen during birth that could be uh, an issue. So it's a whole group of, of of conditions, and and because it's a large group, um, that means there's a lot of kids who actually do fall under the the umbrella of developmental disabilities.
0: It's really comprehensive, and I think you know the organization that you currently work for, Catalyte. Um, you claim to be a provider of person-centered care, Mm -hmm. right? And this is advancing access to the critical services that are necessary, but also obviously and in in support of people with disabilities, but also for their families and advocacy and things like this. Mm -hmm. But in terms of that person-centered care, what does this actually look like?
1: Well, you know, one size never fits all, right? So when we look at person-centered care, we're really looking at the child. It could be a youth or adults. We have we have uh, services for adults as well, um, and we also, of course, want to look at their environment. We want to look at their family. So sometimes we say person and family-centered care because we want to get that family in there for sure. But we really want to make sure that we are providing the the services or the treatment. Um, That really fits that child, youth or adult and the family. And so it's specific to them so that we're not saying, you know, everybody with a developmental disability gets X. That doesn't make any sense, of course, right? We want to really tailor our services or if we're doing treatment like behavioral health treatment, we want to tailor it to that uh, child and that family.
0: Which, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, I, I don't know if we had talked about this in any of our co- previous conversations, but my my, my younger sister um, is on the autistic um, spectrum and was diagnosed extremely late because the research wasn't quite there yet. And she was, quote unquote, very high functioning. Um, the intervention that didn't ever happen has had a material impact on her life as as well as the whole family, of course. And I know you yourself also are the parent of a a uh, developmentally disabled adults now. Um, how has that experience shaped your, I mean, you were a clinical psychologist before that. So how has that shaped your understanding of how we treat and address and intervene in in, you know, kind of uh, the the disability world? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. That's such a great question. I think I've
1: learned so much from my son. I mean, my son has been my greatest teacher. and, Uh, Because my son has minimal language connected to his intellectual disability, um, I really learned a lot about communication and language and the role that communication plays and how we can really work with somebody like my son uh, to help them communicate in all kinds of different ways. Again, you know, it's not like one way is not the right way. So uh, for my son, he uses some signs He uses gestures. I always say you can get a lot done with pointing. If you have a child who has a minimal language, teaching them to point is often one of the first things that we do because now that allows some self determination. So the parent can hold up juice and milk, and the child can point to which one they want. And that seems like a little thing, but if you have a, a child or a youth and adult who's really has minimal language abilities. Their ability to just say what they want to drink or what they like to eat, these kinds of basic things, really improve self-determination. And we know that self-determination for the person with a developmental disability and for their family um, Mm -hmm. options and self-determination, family self-determination, really rolls up to well-being. And so we can improve well-being by improving communication and improving self-determination
0: it it makes sense i mean i think you have a very clear passion for that self-determination um piece of things and as you mentioned it's not only for the 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 developmentally disabled person child or otherwise but also for that family um inclusion is another piece of this Mm -hmm. right and and if you can't communicate in any way you're kind of excluded from the world at large is that what you mean by inclusion of 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 people with developmental disability
1: Yeah, inclusion is something that we hear about a lot. And of course, inclusion is important, but it's also important for the person to decide where they want to be included. So, you know, sometimes we say, well, just um, everybody needs to be included in everything. Well, we have some uh, youth, for example, with autism, autistic youth, uh, some without intellectual disability who are quite bright and say, you know what, I'm not interested in those social things. That's not my thing. And I don't want to do that. So we want to give people options and choices, and that's where the self-determination comes in. Um, On the other hand, we want to make sure that people are able to be included in the things that they want to do, and they're able to get uh, jobs and go to school and do all those kinds of things. So I think where we've gotten from where I started many, many years ago um, in, in the field is that we really recognize that we need to have a lot of options for people, and for some uh, people, and autism is a good example. You know, having time by themselves, not necessarily being included in social situations when they don't want to be, is very important for their well-being or quality of life. Um, my son happens to be quite social, and he likes to be included. Um, so, you know, for him, inclusion is really important. But we need to really uh, make sure that we're we're Giving providing the person what it is they really need. Well,
0: it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, obviously there are professional caregivers. Um, there are psychologists, there are doctors, there are medical researchers, there are all sorts of people involved, also policy makers, you know, executives at the healthcare companies, the pharma companies, et cetera, who are major players in this. But what is, and I think you have a real passion for this and and Catalyte, I think enables this, but like, what is the role of the parent or or, or another caregiver? in mediating the care for someone who can't necessarily be an advocate for themselves?
1: Well, that's another good question. And one of the things that we really worked on is having options, uh, parent or caregiver mediated treatment options. So what we found, particularly for our younger children or uh, youth who may have an intellectual disability along with autism, is that empowering the parent and training the parent to actually do the direct intervention works very, very well for a lot of families. And it also gives that uh, parent a way to really improve their communication and their relationship with their child, which is is often um, equally important. So, when when you think about treatment, you can have a professional, often as a paraprofessional, going in the home and working with the child, but you could also train the parent to work directly with a child. It could also be a grandparent. Don't forget grandparents. It could be an aunt or some other uh, person in the family that is going to actually be trained in the intervention for that particular child. And you can obviously have a combination of things where you have you know, a, a professional or a paraprofessional involved, you have the parent uh, caregiver involved, and again, you know, depending on how old the child is, depending on what it is we're trying to address, whether we're trying to improve communication or whether we're trying to decrease behaviors that are problematic, which we do see a lot in our population, uh, it you know sort of depends again on the family and the person what's the best fit for them. But I think it used to be that we sort of said if you have a child with a developmental disability, you sort of hand them over to the professionals, and and that we know is is a mistake. Parents, uh, they know their child best, they understand their child best, and working with a parent is really a great way to see progress in a child.
0: I love that. Um, and, and, and it makes a lot of sense from firsthand experiences as yeah. well. Um, it, there's always in every conversation these days a whole lot of talk about technology and the role mm-hmm. that technology plays. And since we're especially looking to the future of developmental disabilities, Um, What are some of the technologies that you see emerging and that, you know, let's say five to 10 years from now are going to be really, really important for this, you know, conversation of developmental disability?
1: Yeah, you know, there's so many. I want to start out talking about a technology that's not that new and that is noise-canceling headphones. A lot of our kids with developmental disabilities, both those with autism and those with intellectual disabilities, have, are very sensitive to sensations, and they can be very sensitive to a lot of noise and things going on. And giving a child a really good pair of noise-canceling headphones can really make a big difference to them. And that's a technology that wasn't around actually you know, even 25 years ago, but they're readily available now. Um, so sometimes it's smaller technologies like that, and even technologies that are a little bit older that that are uh, very helpful. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of emerging technologies around uh, training and teaching. We do have to be very careful with young children, in particular, with screen time, because we know that even for typically developing children without a developmental disability, a lot of screen time actually affects their brain. And it's not good and interrupts uh, parents too. And ours too, right? Yeah, we're on the screen too much, um, but um, particularly for young children, where their brain is developing, so we want to be very careful about screen time. One of the things that we've talked about at Catalyte, we've presented on um, in um, some of our um, uh, conferences, is a wearable where the person is wearing something that is 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 able to alert a caregiver when they might be in distress. Mm. Um, There's also wearables that might help for someone who has dangerous elopement where, you know, we're worried about a child being lost. So Uh. finding them like GPS Um, and, and then there's lots of, things that are coming out um, around uh, teaching technologies. There are a few gaps though, and I'm gonna just mention one because I'm hoping someone will be listening to this and they would help with this one particular gap. And then as we don't have enough games, like computer games, for someone like my son that doesn't look like a baby game because he doesn't want to play something that a little kid would play, but he can't really understand, you know, even the simple uh, computer games that are out there. But he has a uh, an iPad and he wants to play a game and I, I'm really hoping that people will start to develop, you know, some of those leisure activities for people like my son who are adults. Yeah. Um, or teenagers, uh, and uh, they can uh, have the the gaming experience um, as well. So there's lots of room for lots of smart people in tech to develop new things for sure.
0: I right. I love that Doreen. and hopefully someone is listening because that's such a huge. I mean, gaming is a yeah. multi billion dollar industry, and the fact that's that right. there, this isn't being addressed is is unfortunate. But I think it also leads to a, a natural question of like. What are some of the barriers to providing proper treatment and service, and and who are the players who can and will be addressing this going forward? Well, there's
1: you know there's a number of barriers. Um, <clears throat> coverage, insurance coverage, can sometimes still be a barrier, even with the Affordable Care Act. We still have in some states, uh, especially those that did not uh, expand Medicaid, where we don't have good insurance coverage for some of our families. I'm in California. And Hawaii, we we are in both those states, and we have you know better Affordable Care Act coverage in in those states. But there's plenty of states that don't. Um, and another thing I think is just um, people not understanding and not realizing that when they see if a child is not developing the way we would expect, you know, it's time to get to go and get an appointment with the pediatrician and say, you know, he's not talking yet, and and usually, you know, the, the children really have quite a few words by age three, and we would really be worried if a child is not having some words by age three and get that early intervention. We know early intervention is very effective. And one of the other problems that we see is just people being in locations where they're just not, they're out in more rural areas. And they may not be close enough to uh, some place to even go and seek an evaluation to get a diagnosis. And so that can be um, a barrier. Yeah. Telehealth has really helped. Since since the pandemic, we've really been able to expand telehealth. We did very little telehealth before the pandemic. We do a lot of telehealth now. Um, and there's a lot of good research that's come out showing that we can do a lot with telehealth. So wow, it's
0: interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's just a lot of different things that can be barriers in different areas of the country and in different, um, uh, you know, rural versus uh, urban areas, and uh, that kind of thing. There are some cultural barriers sometimes where people are not, you know, feel like they really can't bring up a problem. Sometimes that happens, although I think we're seeing that less. Yeah, um, but we still are missing kids that we that we need to be addressing
0: and in terms of kind of uh, the the conversation everything is local and these i mean often this is just a family specific right experience unfortunately it's very isolating sometimes it's it's very hard the money that you need to access care to navigate the healthcare system especially in this country but is there anything happening at a policy level either locally state federally or I mean, better yet, even like internationally, that's that's addressing any of the future of developmental disability kind of challenges? Yes, I think
1: there are a few things. Now, one of the things that happened with autism is that now all 50 states mandate private insurance coverage for autism services. And that was something a lot of parents and a lot of clinicians fought for. And now for a, a few years now, we've had all 50 states. The laws may differ a little bit state to state, but they're all covered. Now what California did was they expanded that. So it's not just autism, it will be any developmental disability, right? I like to see the other states follow suit with that because what's happened is if you have a child with Down syndrome and somebody else has a child with autism, it may be that the child with autism is getting more services through their insurance company than than the child with Down syndrome, which doesn't make any sense, of course. So hopefully, you know, some of the other states will follow um, what uh, California has done and expand the the health insurance coverage, which I think is very important. There are a number of international organizations. We um, were able to uh, present in Sweden at, at an international uh, conference this year. We're hoping to do that again next year and, and nice. I present our research. Um, so there's some international organizations. And what's really interesting about some of the international work is that we find, again, training parents. So there was a very nice um, presentation in Sweden by a researchers from uh, India, rural India areas, where they were training parents, just like we're doing in California. I'm, in a, I'm not in a rural area. I'm in an urban area and, and I'm training parents. And they were training parents in this very um, uh, rural area in India and getting great results again uh, by training the parents. And so, if if we can figure out ways to reach people, we can use family members to do that. I think that that's one of the things that's really going to help us going forward.
0: Yeah, that makes that makes enormous sense. Um, and I appreciate that kind of like quick global overview because uh, although the challenges are different, they are also universal. That's um, right, especially when dealing with developmental disabilities specifically, right? Yeah. I mean, it manifests in the same way. When, whatever your language, color, you know, race. Uh, ethnicity gender or anything else so um I, I think that's quite interesting especially when we think about inclusion as well yeah um, as, as we think about wrapping up we have a, a couple more questions. Um, one of the most important ones I think is how to measure outcomes because in a lot of these developmental disabilities, as you said, the the issue manifests as it in childhood at some level, but it carries forward you know through the future and I think about my own sister, you know, who, again, high functioning, but doesn't function within normal society in any way, shape or form. You know, I think about had she been diagnosed younger, what outcomes could we have hoped for and how would we have measured success along the way? Um, what, what is your take on that? And I know Catalyte has um, a, a, some, some strong perspective on this also. Yeah, we do actually. We you know there's a
1: lot of different outcome measures. And you know, we all look at goal attainment, for example. I don't think you're going to look at any program that doesn't have goal attainment, and we certainly look at goal attainment. And then, you know, there's other things we want to look at. We look at sleep. Sleep is very, very important to improve sleep. So there's a lot of different things you can look at, but here's where we finally landed. All of that needs to roll up to well-being or quality of life. So we've developed some well-being scales as a result because what we said to ourselves is, that okay, so they met the goal or they didn't meet the goal or you know this is a little bit better, that's a little bit better, but is this person, is their well-being improved? And is the family's well-being improved? And one of the things that we've learned is that you don't have to be doing things the way everybody else does them in order to have well-being. So I'll give an example uh, about my son. My son can't count money. And he used to, when he was younger, we had the IEP and we had the goal of counting money every year, counting money. And it's just like, you know, he's never going to count money. never learned to count money. But here's what we've re- realized. What he wants to do is buy his own coffee. Well, you can buy a cup of coffee anywhere if you have a $20 bill in your wallet, right? And it doesn't matter, you know, even a fancy coffee you could buy for at least less than $20, at least so far anyway. Um, and so my son's- Not wife, where? Is really, yeah, most places- my son's well-being is really about being able to buy his own coffee. It's not about counting money. So if we think about well-being, then we think, well, you know, counting money for this person is not the right goal, really. What is the goal? And for your sister, what would improve her well-being? She doesn't have to be like everybody else. Um, she can be herself, but what things would actually improve her well-being? And that's kind of the direction that we're really going now at Cadillac. We've got a lot of different outcome measures and it's all, it's very important we we look at, at dangerous behaviors and decreasing dangerous behaviors and things like that. but of course if we do decrease dangerous behaviors we're improving well-being but we want to see everything roll up to well-being now
0: I love I, I love I, I again you had mentioned that previously and I really like the idea of well-being is like the goal and well-being's bantied about in lots of different forms these days um, and, and in this context, it actually really like means mean something um, um, very, very profound. Um, so my last question, I mean, I think about Catalyte's, you know, mission, which is to support individuals with developmental disabilities as they embark on their own journey by removing barriers and biases to create a more inclusive world, one that reflects and celebrates the unique differences of everyone. Again, we talk about this. That's quite a big, bold, audacious goal, given that this is, is of course, what a great mission statement does. Um, If we look ahead, and this is always the last question on Future of XYZ, you know, 10 to 20 years in the future, what is your greatest hope for the future of developmental disability?
1: Well, my greatest hope, I think, is that we will have options that support families and and children and, and adults and that they will be available to everyone. And we didn't talk about the intersectionality between say race and developmental disabilities, but that's an issue, right? So some of our underrepresented uh, groups don't always get the same services that that uh, someone who's white does, for example. So really paying attention to that and making sure that there are those um, options for services that are the right fit for that person and that family and they don't have to, the parents don't have to, you know, go searching all over the place and begging for them, right? But that we will be there um, because we want people to be able to have their own path and everybody's path is different. And we think that's okay.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, Dr. Doreen Samuelson, thank you very much for joining us on Facebook XYZ today. Um, for everyone watching and listening, uh, you can learn more about Catalyte, um and and this co- topic at Catalyte.org. Um, you also if you uh, aren't already following future of XYz on social media please find us at future of Xyz on instagram. you can visit future of.xyz to learn more about the program to nominate yourself or someone else you know as a guest um or just generally to to access any of the podcast channels anywhere you get your favorite podcast is good and uh, you can visit ripbs.org forward slash xyz. Uh, to access the videos uh, through our presenting partner, uh, Rhode Island PBS. Thank you again, uh, Doreen, for joining us. And uh, for everyone watching and listening, we will see you again in two weeks.